0: The scripture reading today is from Matthew 5:38 through 42 you've heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth but I say to you do not resist the one who is evil but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek turn to him the other also and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic let him have your cloak as well and if anyone forces you to go one mile go with him two miles give to the one who begs from you and to do, do not refuse the one who would borrow from you this is the word of the Lord Thanks, Well Hey, good morning, everybody. Congratulations for, for making it to, to church on Daylight Saving Sunday. God doesn't love you anymore uh, for, for doing that, but it kind of seems like maybe He should, right? Uh, the alarm went off really early today. So my name is Scott. If we haven't met yet, I know there's there's a constant flow of of newcomers as well as the rooted community here uh, that shows up at, in town. Uh, and uh, so I am I am the I guess what they call the 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 senior pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church. But, I, but I'm I'm mainly situated at the central location off of Old Hickory Boulevard, and, and sometimes I'll, I'll pop over here to um, <coughs> share a sermon, and i um, doing that less and less and less these days, um, but uh, it's great to be here uh, with you, and Derek was wrong. Uh, Stacy's actually working in the nursery today. Um, the doctor said, just please don't be around adults, but, but uh, uh, yeah, I'm teasing on that, uh, not very funny, but um, in any event, we have been uh, at both locations. Uh, doing a series on the Sermon on the Mount. We, we preach from the t- same text of Scripture uh, at, every Sunday, Stacy and I do. Uh, and today we are talking about turning the other cheek. So uh, pastor and writer Eugene Peterson said this about pastors. He said, a pastor's job is not to solve people's problems or to make them happy but to help them see the grace of God operating in their lives. And so this is an especially helpful statement when the Sermon on the Mount uh, is the the part of Scripture that you're you're preaching through. It's a relief with with brutal passages of Scripture uh, to know that it is not my job to make you happy. Uh, It also presents a challenge, though, because it is my job To help you see the grace that's here. The grace in statements like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. When people say all kinds of false and slanderous and mean things about you. um, It's a challenge to show you where grace is at work when Jesus says, it's not only that you've murdered. It's that you've angered in your heart that, that, that makes you a murderer. It's not only that you've gotten into bed with somebody that you shouldn't have, it's that you've had lust in your heart that makes you an adulterer. Or chapter 6, which is where we're going to uh, meander in the weeks ahead, which is all about the hypocrisy that, that we all live with every day in our own hearts. And so today, I'm really glad that we have an easier text. You know, a very smooth sailing, affirming, um, hard, very easy to follow text, you know, that tells us when people steal from you, give them an extra shirt. Uh, Or when people slap you in the face, turn the other cheek. That's really easy to do, right? It's really easy to be kind to people who don't deserve kindness. It's really easy to try to Defuse things and win over the people who are actively beating up on you, isn't it? It's not, it's not easy at all. And yet, it's a kingdom thing. It's what Jesus calls us into. So, Martin Luther King Jr., when he uh, was buried, uh, at his funeral, his friend and Baptist minister, Benjamin Mays, another leader in the civil rights movement, said this in, in the eulogy that he gave. If any man knew the meaning of suffering, King knew. His house was bombed. He was living day by day for 13 years under constant threats of death, maliciously and falsely accused, stabbed, slugged in a hotel lobby, jailed over 20 times, deeply hurt because friends betrayed him. And yet this man had no bitterness in his heart, no rancor in his soul, no revenge in his mind. And he went up and down the length and breadth of this world, preaching nonviolence and the redemptive power of love. Maybe uh, Benjamin Mays was thinking back to a sermon that King had given on this very text that's in front of us, a sermon called Loving Your Enemies, uh, in which King said these words, Love is the only force capable... Of transforming an enemy into a friend. Meet hate with love, he said. And then we will win our freedom and we will also win over our oppressors. So, grace is kindness to the undeserving. And so, we're going to look at at what grace calls us into under two headings today. One is a portrait of greatness, and then the second is the power for it. So, the portrait of greatness here uh, takes the form of responding to ugliness with kindness. You know, chapter 20, you know, a couple of Jesus' disciples put their mom up to asking Jesus for something. And their mom says to Jesus, you know, when when, when you're in your glory, when. You know, when you've made all things new and, and, and the new heaven and the new earth is here and you're seated firmly on your throne and that's visible and the whole world can see and you're receiving all the glory, can my boys share that with you? Can one of them sit to your right and one of them sit to your left? And it, it becomes clear that the boys actually put their mama up to asking that question of Jesus. And, and Jesus, as he always tended to do, turned this into a teachable moment and said, let me, let me help you understand what greatness is in the kingdom of God is because it's, it's in many ways diametrically opposed to, to the world's understanding of what greatness is because greatness in the kingdom of God is the furthest thing from lording it over people. It's, it's the furthest thing from, from, from seeking glory for yourself. Greatness in the kingdom is bound up in serving. So when, when I was in seminary, I went to... Um, a seminary in St. Louis called Covenant Seminary, get my theological degree. And uh, there was a professor there. He's still there. Uh, I think he's probably the most kind and humble part, humble-hearted person that I've ever met in my life. His name is Jerem Bars. And one of the things that Jerem said in, 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 in pastoral theology class, this is, how, this is where he was saying, "Look, you, you may have this crazy idea that ministry is just about, you, know, the introverted exercise of preaching." You know, this is very introverted, right? Because I'm just sharing my thoughts and you all are eavesdropping. I have complete control over the moment unless one of you starts attacking me, you know, from your seat, right? Um, he said, unless we believe that, 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 that ministry is really strictly about preaching the Word in that introverted moment of, of, of telling people like it is, ministry in the heart of ministry is actually getting into the messiness of people's lives. And then he, you know, he, he brought up this... This anecdote of a friend of his who was a pastor who said, I love ministry except for the people part. <laughs> and and, and Jerem said, look, <laughs> ministry is the people part. And he said, this is one of the ways to gauge how you're doing with Jesus. This is one of the ways to gauge whether or not you too would ask your mom to, 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 to petition Jesus for some perks to make you look good. How do you respond when people treat you like a servant? That's how you'll know whether or not you really are one. How do you respond when high maintenance, difficult, costly to be in relationship with people treat you like a servant? Or as next Sunday's text will will, point us to, how do you respond to Jesus' invitation to love your enemies? And so a couple of questions I think are important to, to sort of grapple with. One is, um, is Jesus saying to us that to identify with him means that we need to be doormats, that, that, that we need to just let people beat up on us and take advantage of us and steal from us and, and those sorts of things. And I, I think part of uh, what helps us to interpret Jesus's Difficult words here would be to go back to Micah six eight, which is a pretty famous text in the Bible for those who read the Bible, um, where it says that God has shown you what is good and what the Lord requires of you to do justly, and then to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. And so, so mercy, justice, humility—these are all sibling virtues. And 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 you know, you could say that they all represent Kind of two sides of the same coin. There's a toughness and a a tenderness. There's a a fierceness and a gentleness. There's, you know, Jesus the lamb and there's Jesus the lion. And and it's all bundled up into one package. And so in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not prohibiting things like self defense, avoiding bullies. You should defend yourself if, if you're being attacked viciously. You should avoid bullies and not put yourself out there to get beat up. And, and he's also not saying that if you identify with me, that means you need to trust bullies as much as you trust the people who love you the most and who have your best interests. No, trust is earned. That doesn't change when, when you become a follower of Jesus. And so I, I think if, if we... If we kind of explored what what Micah means, what the Scripture means throughout when it says to do justly, that might help us understand a little bit more Jesus' teaching here in Matthew 5. Because by definition, justice is, is to set things right that are wrong, which means to name things that are wrong so that they can be made right. Jesus was doing this all the time. And so, um, here's, here's something I think that, that's important for us to wrestle with. Jesus was not nice. He was not a nice guy. He was not the you know, fair-skinned, handsome, six-foot-two, brown-haired, blue-eyed guy that looked like a member of the Bee Gees. That, that, that we experience in movies, that we experience in, you know, illustrated Bibles and things like that. You know, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Jesus would never yell at somebody. Jesus would never, you know, get, you know arch his back. Well, do we remember in, in chapter 16 of this very book of the Bible when, when Peter got it wrong about what Jesus' mission was? This is how important Christology is, by the way, and Christology is just the the theology of Jesus. We have to get it right in terms of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Like, everything is at stake. And everything is at stake, you know, to to, to understand that, that he is both fully God and fully human, that he died, that he is risen, that he will come again, that he had to suffer on the cross, otherwise we would be left exposed and vulnerable before God. He had to absorb that punishment in order to protect us. So we, we got to get all that right. And, and, and it's so much a thing at stake that when, when Peter, one of his three closest friends, said, Jesus, all this talk about you suffering and dying, you're above that. It says that, that Jesus got a little bit ballistic on him and, 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 and looked his close, close friend Peter in the eye and says, get behind me, Satan. You know, he, he, he named his, one of his best friends and most loyal followers after the devil in that moment. Or chapter 21, when, when people are looking at the temple or at the church, chiefly as a place to create opportunity for themselves and, and to build their networks, Jesus got really sideways about that and started picking up tables and turning them over and having a hissy fit in church. I mean, can you imagine if, you know, Stacy Croft or or Brett Taylor or somebody just, you know, communion started and they just picked this table up and threw it over, you know, right? I mean, we can't even picture that. How much less can we picture gentle Jesus, meek and mild? throwing tables in church. But he would get so upset at certain things. Or in chapter 23, he looks at religious professionals and calls them snakes. He evokes the language of the Garden of Eden, you know, and, 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 and evokes the, the image of the serpent. You, you're no better than the devil himself because you're hypocrites. You're, you're whitewashed tombs. You, you look all alive and polished on the outside, but you're dirty and dead on the inside. Like, He gets fierce. He was not nice. He was kind. He was infinitely kind. But he was not nice. He was not a nice dude. The cross itself is an act of defiance. The cross is the place where Jesus destroyed evil once and for all. And and yet, even those who were closest to him mistook the meaning of the cross. They, they, They thought it was a loss. They thought it was the end of things, when really it was just the beginning of Jesus making all things new. You know, if you're, if you're a theater person, you know, you may have, you know, stumbled across Jesus Christ Superstar at some point and, 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 and watched that, either the film version or seen it in the theater, and you may remember that scene where, where, where you've got Jesus, you know, being brought in to Pontius Pilate. And and Pilate looks sort of scornfully and and boastfully at, at, at the battered Jesus, and says, a king? They say you're a king? But you're so small, not a king at all. See, and then you have the great Baptist preacher, the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, looking at the same episode, with entirely different eyes. And you hear Spurgeon saying, he stoops to conquer. The cross is an act of defiance. It's like Tertullian said about the martyrs, that the blood of the martyrs is actually the seed of the church. C.S. Lewis said that Christianity is a fighting Religion. This is what justice is. Christianity thinks that a great many things have gone wrong with the world, and that God, that God made, and that God insists and insists very loudly on our putting them right again. You know, this is why it's 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 so central to the vision of Christ Presbyterian Church to fight for the underdog. I, mean, I don't know if you've you've perused you know our website or gotten involved, but. You know, we have missional communities, missional partnerships, we deploy money, we deploy people. Sizable portion of of, of our people and our resources uh, to fight addiction, to, to fight on behalf of the vulnerable unborn, to fight on behalf of the vulnerable born and the refugee. To fight on behalf of orphans, to fight on behalf of those who are victims of the sex trade, to fight on behalf of those who are living in poverty and who are experiencing the crushing weight of inequality, to fight on behalf of those whose lives are affected by disabilities and special needs and anxiety and depression. So we're, we're deploying a whole lot of who we are in order to fight in these ways. It's what the theologians call the church militant, the church of Jesus Christ that loses its cool without losing its character, that becomes fierce while remaining tender, that that roars like a lion while living still like a lamb. See, because the Christianity that Jesus brought, which is often sanitized and, and, and made to disappear by Western individualistic comfort values, The Christianity that Jesus brought is sometimes fierce, but never vindictive. It calls us to fight. The call of Jesus Christ on the lives of His followers has never been to deny your neighbor, take up your comforts, and follow your dreams. It's always been to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Him. And, And when you follow Him, you follow Him in to battle on behalf of the underdog. And and, and this also means fighting on behalf of those who are self-destructive and and, and not only being destroyed, but who are self-destructive. So I I love what Nashville's uh, Sheriff Darren Hall has has sort of adopted as as one of the taglines of their philosophy with incarcerated men and women. Sheriff Hall's uh, philosophy is this. And they've gotten national attention and they're, they're, you know, constantly mentoring other, other um, you know, corrections departments around the country. He says this, arrest the problem, not the person. Arrest the problem, not the person. Have the courage to do an intervention with self-destructive behavior. Have the courage to risk losing the relationship even in order to win the heart, in order to win the soul, in order to win that person's health. And where it may seem to the addict or to the sex junkie or to uh, the bully or, or, or to the you know, codependent enabler when you inter- intervene with them. Though it may seem to them like you're fighting against them, you're fighting for them. You're you're trying to arrest the problem and reclaim the person. You know, the Doors front man, Jim Morrison, uh, you know, great, you know, masterful 1960s band. Um, But Jim Morrison, if you know his story, if you've ever read his autobiography, or or his biography, not an autobiography, uh, but his biography, you know, no one gets out of here alive. You know him to be an incredibly self-destructive an incredibly creative person. And one of the things that Jim Morrison said is this, a friend, a true friend is someone who gives you total freedom to be yourself. And, and, and to that kind of statement, you've got to ask the question, which self are we talking about here? Are we talking about your, your free self, your flourishing self, or are we talking about your foolish self? Because a true friend will not give you total freedom to be your foolish self. True friend will arrest the problem in order to reclaim the person. Jesus wasn't nice, but he also wasn't stupid. He loves us. Do you know this? He loves us more than we love ourselves. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows what's good and right and true and healthy for us. And, 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 and because of that, he combines the sibling virtues of, of toughness and tenderness in order to set us right sometimes. And he calls us to do the same with each other. But here's where it gets really hard. When Jesus says, when somebody else slaps you, when they slap you, turn the other cheek. So, he's not being hyper-literal here as much as he's saying, when somebody slaps you, don't retaliate personally. Forgive them. Learn what it means to forgive. And if, if, if there's abuse going on, uh, it's not up to you to take matters in your own hands. It's up to you to, to, to hand the situation to the authority or authorities who do have jurisdiction over abuse. That would be, that would be God and or uh, the governing authorities, if need be. But you resist the urge to slap back because slapping back adds fuel to the fire. It doesn't diffuse it. And, and 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 holding on to a grudge is, is the one way to ensure that the person who is hurting you and injuring you maintains control over your life. You know, Bonhoeffer put it this way, and he knew what he was talking about. Violence stands condemned by its failure to evoke counterviolence. Or Tim Keller said this, a slap, you know, Jesus is talking about a slap here. A slap isn't so much an assault on your physical safety as it is an assault on your honor. Jesus is saying that there has to be a spirit in his followers that is passionate for justice, but without the slightest bit of vindictiveness or vengefulness or spite. So where do we get the power for that? Where do we get the power? To, to put our pet peeves in their cage and, and, and keep them there. The power for greatness, that's our second thought, and that, that is this, that Jesus is kind to us when we are at our very worst, which is the, the, the sole basis you know, for, for taking seriously any of this or, or, or thinking realistic any of this teaching here. And here, here's the twist, too, that this passage, just like the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, is a lot more about Jesus than it is about us. Right? When when they slapped him on the cheek, he, he, he didn't retaliate. And when they said, walk a mile, he, he went the extra one, all the way to the death, all the way to the cross. And quite literally, when 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 his clothes, when his shirt was taken off of his back. Remember, the soldiers divided his garments there at the cross. He gave another garment too, the robe of the righteousness of Christ. Like, Do you, do you see all this playing out here? Can your imagination, see it all playing out about how this is so much more about Jesus than it is about us. It's so much more about what he has done rather than what he's calling us to do. And he's the one who gave to the beggars us being the beggars so I was I was undone uh, when I read this uh, somebody sent me this quote another quote from Spurgeon that sort of sums up this whole teaching Spurgeon said God is more willing to forgive than we are to sin isn't that a beautiful thought you know the rich ruler just point blank, rejects Jesus, walks the other way, and it says that Jesus looks at him and loves him. Judas, the son of perdition, betrays Jesus, sells him out, throws him under the bus, and in that in the middle of that, that, that very act of betrayal, Jesus calls Judas friend. The thief on the cross, there are two of them mocking him, making fun of him. Ha! If you're so powerful, ha! If you're the son of God, ha! Take yourself down off this cross if you're so powerful. Not recognizing that it took a lot more power to stay up on the cross. It took a lot more power not to retaliate than it would to retaliate. Even Gandhi said only powerful people have the ability to forgive. There's no such thing as a weak person who knows how to forgive. And then he looks at one of these thieves who comes to his senses and becomes a beggar, and he says in in that very moment, unbaptized man, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Or Peter, who sold him out too, arguably worse than Judas did, denied him three times, Behind his back. And how does Jesus respond? You know, he, he returns. And, and, and what does he do after the resurrection? Instead of responding to Peter with shame and scorn and slapping him back, he affirms him Peter, might sound unbelievable to you, but I still love you. Do you love me? I love you dearly, Peter. And, and, and furthermore, I have a job for you. That's how the gospel works. We slap him, and he turns the other cheek. He he gives to us for the beggars that we are. And because this is chiefly about Jesus, can we face the truth today that we are not just victims, even though we may be victims, we are not just victims. We are also the slappers and the takers and the beggars. You know, Dr. King, you know, speaking of King said this, there is some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. When we discover this, we are less prone to hate our enemies. So this past week, um, actually a couple of weeks ago, um, my mentor, to whom I owe probably... 90% 90% of, of who I am as a minister, uh, Pastor Tim Keller, uh, Redeemer uh, Presbyterian in New York City, where I served uh, for several years before coming to Nashville to serve at Christ Pres, um, you know, announced that he would be retiring from pastoral ministry on July 1st. And so I've just been, that, that hit me a lot harder um, than I thought it would um, because of the impact that he's had on me personally and ministerially and such and um there've been some people come out of the woodwork uh you know podcast interviews and things like that who've asked me you know can you reflect a little bit can you tell us a little bit what it was like to work up close you know with with Tim like everybody respects him from a distance but what's it really like and and um One of the things that was so remarkable to me about Tim, I see Tom Douglas over there, I've shared this with Tom and a few other friends that we hang out with um, on a a regular basis. Um, You know, I went into New York City thinking, I'm going to get to work alongside and and learn from the person that I believe to be the greatest English-speaking visionary and preacher of of our time. It's my opinion, doesn't have to be yours. Uh, but I left um, you know, several years after that for Nashville, when I left, those things that had been first on my list were somewhere around eighth or ninth because, because what I came to experience in, in working closely was, was somebody who um, was very shy about himself and very boastful about Jesus, was not personally ambitious, um, you know, stayed, you know, in the Bible to the, to the tune of praying through the Psalms once every month and, and reading through the whole Bible once every year for like the last 50 years of his life. Strong marriage, you know, all the, all the things that you don't see and that you wonder about. But one of the things that was remarkable to me, um, maybe most remarkable, was how Tim would respond when somebody slapped him. And we live in a world, probably most of us, where we get slapped more with words than we do with with an actual backside of somebody's hand, and, and Tim would get slapped with words, um, you know, usually on the internet from some unaccountable person, um, and it was remarkable. In five years, uh, he never struck back. Uh, this man who is incredibly skilled with words, he could cut you like a knife with his words if he wanted to, never heard him gossip about somebody behind their back, never heard him strike back either directly or indirectly when, when, you know, poorly treated, never attacked or counterattacked. So here's what he wrote in, in, in an essay where he's reflecting on um, you know, one of his mentors, John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, also wrote a, a ton of, pas- a, a ton of you know, letters to young pastors. And Tim sort of put himself under the mentoring of those letters for his you know, years as a pastor. Um, one of the letters that John Newton wrote is a letter called On Controversy. And it was a letter to a young minister about how to handle... Criticism, because ministers will be criticized just like artists will. Like, we all have our critics, right? Uh, And and so Tim wrote a reflection, his own reflection, on on Newton's reflection on how ministers are supposed to receive criticism. See if you can hear a little bit of what Jesus is getting after in Matthew 5 in, in an essay. Here's an excerpt from an essay that Tim wrote on this subject, which sort of takes my breath away. When you're criticized, first you should look to see if there is a kernel of truth in even the most exaggerated and unfair broadsides. It is possible that the criticism is completely unwarranted and profoundly mistaken. I am often pilloried not only for views that I do have, but also even more often for views and motives that I do not hold at all. When that happens, it is even easier to fall into a smugness and perhaps be tempted to laugh at how mistaken your critics are. Pathetic, you may be tempted to say. Don't do it. Even if there is not the slightest kernel of truth in what the critic says, you should not mock them in your thoughts. First, remind yourself of examples of your own mistakes, foolishness, and cluelessness in the past. Times in which you really got something wrong. Second, pray for your critic that he or she grows in grace. How do you get there? You get there with an understanding that Matthew 5 is more about Jesus than it is about you. And when you know that that, that when Jesus has responded to your slapping and your taking and your begging with mercy and kindness, And the justice part, he has taken on himself to set things right. When that becomes your thinking about your identity and about your standing with him, that you serve him out of his favor that's already been given to you undeserved, rather than trying to to earn it through performance or what have you. When you live in this space of understanding that this is chiefly about Jesus' Jesus' life that he lived for you, you will grow in grace too. And you will start to gain over time, even over a lifetime, incrementally the freedom and the power to be both tough and tender and to arrest the problem without arresting the person. May it be so. Let's pray.